0: is still in as relapse sums above
1: Hello and welcome to episode 338 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. I'll be joined shortly by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and by today's guest, Matt Glassman, who is somewhere in Northern Virginia, Vienna, maybe. arlington somewhere in that neighborhood uh a lot of you may know matt he's been one of the more popular guests on the show matt is uh, an avid card player of all sorts poker bridge uh he also is a political scientist who uh closely follows um essentially you know how, how game theory works in american government um the how the different uh, political actors in the U.S. government uh, kind of interact with each other, uh, what their various incentives are often how mainstream media or mainstream explanations of what's going on in American politics tend to misunderstand what's actually going on, because they uh, don't understand the actual motivations of the various actors, which are not not necessarily the same as the motivations of the broader political parties, for instance, Uh, just has a lot of interesting stuff to say about analyzing politics and government through the lens of game theory and uh, poker in particular. Which, of course, has some relevance since you may have heard uh, there is an election in the United States on Tuesday, November 3rd. Uh, we recorded this interview the Wednesday before the election, so six days before the election. Um, likely, we won't be releasing it until the day before the election, Monday. So, you know, I imagine a lot of people are going to be listening to this after the election, which is. Uh, you know, a risk on on Matt's part. Um, you know, he, there's some chance that by the time people hear him, he'll have predicted things that uh, turned out not to be true. Which is, uh, yeah, I think you know, I, I respect his willingness. Which, of course, you know, any good forecaster should be willing to do, and any audience should accept their forecast is is only probabilistic. You know, this is a conversation we had with Nate Silver back when we had him on the show, and we all know how certain predictions went wrong before the 2016 election, uh, which actually was the first time we had Matt on the show, was um, talking about the run-up to the 2016 election. Then we had him on again shortly after the 2016 election, when so many people were surprised by the result to kind of try to make sense of that and talk about what's going to happen next. And um, so, you know, we had a similar conversation this time around about what's going on with the election and what's likely to happen in the wake of the election, uh, how political parties might realign, and just a lot of interesting stuff. Matt is simply a fantastic guest, Uh, not a coincidence that he's one of the most popular among both uh, listeners and your hosts. Uh, Nate and I both really enjoy talking to Matt. Uh, you will hear Nate had to go early, so the last, I don't know, 45 minutes of the... It's a long interview. The interview is about an hour and a half. Um, the the second half of the interview is just Matt and me, which uh, might be a plus for some people and a negative for others, but it's what it is. Before we do that, of course, want to share some poker strategy with you. Uh, this person has a question. This is from John. Uh, John has a question about game theory, which um, I'm always happy to address these, um, I would say, common misunderstandings about game theory. And I don't mean to say that in a patronizing way. This is actually something that I myself misunderstood before I made more of an active effort to look into into game theory and really understand its applicability in poker. Uh, If you're interested in the work that resulted from my uh, deep dive into game theory, you'll want to check out my book, Play Optimal Poker, and also the sequel, Play Optimal Poker 2. Those are both available on Amazon. If you want a paperback, Uh, Kindle, of course, also available through Amazon. You can also get the eBooks at nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. If you don't care about game theory and you're interested in something um, that's more just about how to, for example, exploit small stakes tournaments, you might want to pick up our new strategy video, Exploiting Small Stakes Tournaments, which is a collaboration between myself and uh, the only guest we have is more popular than Matt Glassman, Carlos Welch. Um, That is also available, that is available exclusively at knitcast.com. John writes, Andrew and Nate. Thank you for the continuous stream of high-level poker strategy. I feel like it's given me a much better understanding of the game. Uh, I understand that by definition, I would not be able to beat an opponent playing a perfect game-theoretically optimal strategy. But since that strategy is perfectly balanced, would I be able to lose against it? Intuitively, I would think I wouldn't. For instance, if I face a bet that is indifferent to being called, then if I fold too much or call too much, I would expect the same expected value. But I can certainly think of ways that I would be successful in losing, mainly by never seeing the river. Can you help me understand what is at play here? So as I said, I think a very understandable question, something that I also struggled to wrap my head around uh, the first time that I read Mathematics of Poker. And that's because I primarily understood game theory through the lens of the Ace-King-Queen game. I think a lot of you will be familiar with this. I talk about it in my book, Uh, my books. We've talked about it on on the show before. If you don't know what it is, um, I don't really want to re-explain it right now. Um, you can you can Google it if you're not sure. but The basic idea is just that you're playing a game where each player gets dealt a single card, either an ace, a king, or a queen, and um, you know there's no drawing, or you know the hands are just what they are. The hands don't change, and then there's there's betting. So in this game, um, if you imagine a player who is betting. Uh, there, there are certain hands that are going to be indifferent, and certain hands that are not. I think that's that's the fundamental misunderstanding here. Um, game theory is not about making your opponent indifferent to every single action that they could possibly take. Um, game theory is about trying to create as many situations as possible where there is no right play for your opponent, which you know by definition means that they're going to be indifferent between two options, that uh, two or more options. So you're trying to create a situation. Uh, for instance, where if, if you bluff with an optimal frequency, your opponent, when they're holding a pure bluff catcher, is going to be indifferent between calling or folding to that bet. Calling and folding will both have an expected value of zero. That's what it means to say you've given them no good option. Um, literally, they, they, there's nothing they can do to gain value against that bet with that hand. You're not going to be able to make your opponent indifferent with every single hand that, uh, that they might hold. So in the, in the example of the Ace-King-Queen game, there's one hand that's the nuts, which is an ace. There's the queen, which is the nut low. And then there's a king. So when a player uh, bets, the first thing to recognize about the ace-king-queen game is that there's no reason to ever bet a king. Um, unless you have some reason to believe your opponent would fold an ace, which would be crazy. Um, you know why, why would they ever fold the nuts to a bet? So there, there's no reason to ever bet a king um, because your opponent would either... Uh, they would just play perfectly, right? They would call if they had an ace, they would fold if they had a queen. There's really no reason they should ever make a mistake holding an ace or a queen. So generally we would expect a player betting in the ace, king, queen game to be holding either an ace or a queen. Um... And then the player facing a bet right they could hold an ace a king or a queen now with two of those hands there's a clear right play right if you have the nut low and you're facing a bet you should fold Um, if you have the nuts and you're facing a bet you should call unless you have chips that you're allowed to raise with but in this game you don't so um with, with those two hands there's nothing that the betting player can do to make the other player indifferent when they're holding a queen or an ace there's a clear right play with those hands Only when that player is holding a king can they be made indifferent. It is true that if the betting player bets with the right proportion of uh, aces and and queens, they they bluff in the right proportion to their their value bets given the size of the bet, then the player who is faced with the bet when holding a king is indifferent between calling and folding. And it won't matter whether that player always calls, never calls, calls at the perfect game theoretical frequency or, or anything else. Likewise, if the player with the king, um, you know, if they they always call when they have an ace, they always fold when they have a queen, and then with a king, they call at the game theoretically optimal frequency, they make the betting player indifferent to bluffing. They they don't make them indifferent to betting with a king. There's a clear right play with the king, which is checking. There's a clear right play with an ace, which is betting. The only hand that ends up being indifferent is uh, is a queen, which is indifferent between bluffing and checking. The player facing the bet is going to end up calling just often enough to make betting the queen. have ev of zero uh and 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 also folding just often enough to make betting the queen have an ev of zero it won't have a positive ev it won't have a negative ev it will be no better or worse than than checking um but remember these players are not indifferent with all of these hands just like in, in real poker you're not indifferent you know I, I specified earlier if you're facing a bet and you have a pure bluff catcher you might be indifferent between calling and folding so when i say a pure bluff catcher i mean a hand that will lose to every single hand your opponent might be value betting and beat every single hand your opponent might be bluffing. And we also have to consider in, in a real poker game, blockers could be an issue one way or the other. But let's just forget about blockers for the time being. So when you have a pure bluff catcher like a king in the ace-king-queen game, you are indifferent between calling and folding. But many hands don't meet that definition. right? If you have the nuts on the river and you're facing a bet, you're not indifferent between calling and folding. And, okay, that's not a, you know, we expect that most people. I mean, it happens. Sometimes people misread their hand. They don't realize they have the nuts and they make mistakes. But, like, generally people don't make mistakes when they're facing a bet, when all-in bet on the river and they're holding the nuts, nor when they're holding the nut low. But people do make mistakes with hands that, are strong enough that they should always be calling with them. I mean, sometimes people fail to recognize their hand is strong enough to value bet. Sometimes people fail to recognize their hand is good enough to call. Sometimes people call with hands that are so weak that they should be pure folds. So there are going to be right plays. Um, Game theory does not mean that your opponent never has a right play. It just means that you're trying to minimize the number of right plays that they have. Sometimes your opponent just gets dealt very good hands and there's nothing that you can do to stop them from showing a profit with those hands. Your objective is to minimize the number of hands they can show a profit with while also minimizing how much they win when they do get good hands, which of course is a balancing act, right? If you you call too much, they win too much with their good hands. If you fold too much, they win too much with their bad hands. And this is all very complicated in the context of a game like No Limit Hold'em where you have to consider that hands might change value and you don't know what the turn and river cards are going to be and, you know, it all gets very complicated, but fundamentally that's what's happening. You're trying to design a strategy that um, gives your opponent as few good options as possible. It's not the same as giving them no good options. It is true that if you are playing a perfect game theoretically optimal strategy, there's nothing your opponent can do to exploit it. There is some amount of EV your opponent would get if you both played a perfect GTO strategy. And um, there's no way that your opponent can improve on that number. But there's certainly ways they can do worse. I mean, in No Limit Hold'em, a simple example would be, assume you just folded every single hand before the flop. That's a strategy. I mean, that's within the rules of the game. It's not a very, it's, it's a clearly bad strategy. Some people would do better with that strategy than they do with the strategy that they actually use. Not very many, but some, right? There are poker players out there who play so badly that they'd be better off just folding every single hand that they're dealt. Um, so, you know, it is, it is possible to do worse than what a game theoretically optimal strategy would do against another game theoretically optimal strategy. Uh, it just isn't possible to do better. Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, Thank you, John. It was an excellent question. Thank you everyone else for listening. Again, if you're more interested in this subject, you can uh, check out my book, Play Optimal Poker. I talk about exactly this example in more depth. Please enjoy our interview with Matt Glassman. Hey, Matt Klassman, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. This is great. It's, um, I feel like it it was, has not been that long since we talked to you, but I think it was, it was actually has been, uh, you know, it was was much closer to the beginning of, uh, the the lockdown or the quarantine or or whatever we've, I don't know if we've collectively reached a, a name for it yet, but, um, I mean, I, I know you missed out on your b- being able to be in Saratoga this uh, yes. this summer, so I'm, right. I'm sorry about that. You've spoken very eloquently on the show before about how much you, you love being there in the summer.
2: Yeah, it was so sad. I was like watching the Travers, which is like the the major, you know, the, the famous race at Saratoga at the end of August, and I was like watching on TV, and uh, you know, the stands were empty, and it was just like, oh, I didn't even want to look at it. I kind of just, I couldn't even watch. It made me very sad. Um, my sister did report though, that up in Saratoga, like a lot of the, uh, restaurants, um, had built outdoor seating. And now that you can bet on the races from like an app, like there were people, like there were people in town. It wasn't like a ghost town. Um, so that made me, that made me feel good. But, uh, yeah, that was sort of, that was sort of, man, it seems like that was back in August, which seems like both yesterday and forever ago. Um, Mm -hmm. the the other, uh, I thought you were going to say that I hadn't been on the show, uh, it hadn't been that long ago since the first time I was on the show, which was like four years ago, like right now, I think.
3: Yeah, um, yeah. Or,
2: or slightly before that, maybe the second time I was on the show was like four years ago, like right now, uh, right before the twenty sixteen election, and that also has this sort of forever ago but just yesterday feel, um, which is which is which is. I don't know. I don't know if it's disconcerting or good. I just feel like there's like before the pandemic and then there's before the Trump administration and both those things feel like <laughs> lifetimes of their own. Yeah. <laughs> lifetimes yeah. of their own. It's like a lifetime within a lifetime. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like uh, certainly, um, certainly like someone, you know, anytime someone says something about like what happened like last Christmas, I'm like, wait, that was last, that was just last Christmas. Like that's the one that gets me is like trying to think back to fall 2019 just seems like I uh, feel like I've lived. Uh,
3: two lifetimes since then. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a tough get right now. I mean, you know, this is elections. You know things about elections. We've got one of them in six yes. days. So yes. thanks. Yeah, no
2: problem. I'm happy. I, you know, it's funny because when, uh, uh, you know, I'm actually, like, well, I, yes, I'm very into elections, but like within the sphere of like politics people, like academically or practitioners watching, I'm really not an elections person. Uh, there's this big division, certainly in like political science between people who, think about institutions like Congress or the presidency and and politics there and people who study sort of either voter behavior or elections, right, like campaigns and things. And uh, I'm definitely on the institutional side. And also like in terms of jobs people have in Washington uh, or in politics in general, I've always been more sort of working in the institutions than working on the electoral side. Um, But yeah, no, it's certainly, I'm certainly a political junkie, but as sort of a academic or a practitioner, I've really, I mean, I've worked on a lot of campaigns, but really just volunteering back in the day, I've never done that sort of stuff professionally, uh, which isn't either here or there when we're when we're six days out from a presidential election, but it is sort of a division within sort of these communities that a lot of people don't see, uh, is that there's sort of, in Washington, there's government type people, and there's election type people, and those are two very sort of different uh, arenas uh, for thinking about things. Yeah.
3: I you've done good things for my mental health in a lot of ways. One of them is just being a realist and, and just the stream of realist perspective on, (laughs) on politics. Like it's just, it's just like whenever something that would make me angry, like often it will make me angry, but at least understanding it in a realist framework, it's like, so soothing. It's just so soothing. And it's like, like, Oh, okay. There are people, they do things, they have reasons, and I have, like, a, a mental list of reasons that I wouldn't have thought of before uh, that now I do think of. And everything just makes a little bit more sense to me. And it's not just, you know, uh, good guys and bad guys in, in, in this chaotic fight, you know. Uh, yeah. So thanks. I,
2: yeah, I think that's, like, one of the things that's nice about sort of getting at real politics is that sort of the... The, the the great men, heroes and villains like of these larger than life reality TV figures kind of fade away into sort of a much more structural scenario with institutions and incentives and sort of actors that are inside of them. Um, but the other one for me, which is funny, because the thing that always makes me feel like a realist is that like Washington politics and national politics is so like not corrupt in the United States relative to both other countries and also like what I grew up with in local politics. Um, and so I always, I always feel like, um, sometimes just sharing stories about what local politics was like, um, or just, you know, how, how nasty local and state politics can be and how professionalized things are in Washington, um, brings people back from the edge where they think sort of. Everything in D.C. and American politics is about to, like, dump off this cliff of corruption and deceit and intrigue and, you know, abandonment of the rule of law and things like that. Like, democracy comes in lots of forms and flavors and varieties, and the U.S. democracy, in my opinion, has, you know, eroded a little bit uh, in recent times, but it is still sort of a shining example of uh, sort of a, a stable, effective um, governing system, not compared, I mean, we've talked about this before, not compared to, like, your normative fantasies, but certainly compared to, like, every other real-world alternative, including in- alternatives that exist in the United States right now, um, yeah. in many state governments and a lot of local governments. Uh, and so I'm always sort of Strangely proud of the U.S. national government, the federal government, Uh, not because it's perfect and not because we couldn't improve it. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think we could improve it really easily Um, or in theory really easily. There's a lot of room for improvement. But, you know, I mean, you just look at other countries or state governments or, you know, (laughs) there's that old joke that always hits home to me is that when people say, like, you know, New Orleans isn't like the worst run city in the United States. It's the best run city in the Caribbean. And like, <laughs> there's a there's like a little bit of truth to that, and it's a really dig on sort of like how like corrupt New Orleans government is, and how corrupt a lot of governments are, and in, in the Caribbean. But like, it really puts things in perspective when you say stuff like that. Yeah, um, and, and you and you think about sort of what what you're what you're dealing with, particularly in, in in countries without stable democracies, where just getting getting a system together, where even like the basics of you know, winners respecting the elections and losers not starting revolutions is just like a nightmare. And so I feel good about the U.S. government. There's a lot of people right now who are really on knife's edge and about to, you know, fall off the cliff. But I don't, uh, you know, I, you know, I think, I don't know, made bad predictions. I made bad predictions four years ago on the show, show, but I kind of think like uh, this election is maybe a turning point for the better in American democracy, Um, And sometimes it takes sort of a drift towards the worst to get to that point. And uh, we may be going that direction. Uh, If the end result of this election is that Biden wins and the Democrats put in some really stringent new voting rights laws, right? Like, you could have a really, like, ultimately a really happy sort of uh, rebound um, from the current sort of situation as I see it.
3: Yeah. I'm not at all an expert on any of the things I'm about to compare. Mm -hmm. But, like, a, a thought I've had rattling around in my head since about 2018 uh, is like out of all sorts of American institutions, like you know, American television, American sports, American academia, and then you know, American Congress, like like the American government, like Trump has had the least corrosive effect on on politics itself. <laughs> like, it's like
0: it's like it's like you know,
3: like actually, the rule of law held up pretty well. Uh, television, you know, like like, it's like the NFL kind of went to hell, but uh, but yeah. yeah I'll, yeah,
2: no, I mean, I, I it's 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 almost like it's funny because, I, you know, my assumption right now is that Trump could win the election, but probably will lose the election um, and may lose the election badly. Um, and it's very sort of unknown, uh, even conditional on that, how we look back on this 10 years from now, because a lot of how we look back on this is going to be what happened in its wake, um, you know, in, in in the wake of some disastrous presidencies. Uh, like, say, Andrew Johnson's in the 1860s, um, sort of the, the the problems he caused and the things he impeded never really got fixed the way, you know, Lincoln and the radical Republicans would have wanted to. In other cases, like after Nixon's presidency, like, we did a lot of good things to do reform and, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I don't, you know, people blame Trump for lots of stuff, and I, I do too, but... Part of what Trump has just done is he's shown sort of the limits of certain types of laws we have and certain structures that have weaknesses, and those weaknesses can be fixed. Um, And Trump sort of trying to exploit those weaknesses in unique ways is not unusual for politicians. It's what political actors do. They look to sort of find ways to achieve their goals when they're being stymied. And uh, sometimes that reveals weaknesses in your system, and a lot of times those weaknesses can be patched up. So I don't want to sort of be like a you know, apologists for the Trump error say there's nothing wrong with what happened here. I think there is, but I do have sort of an optimistic view of where things can go coming out of this. Um, this is not to discount the pessimistic case, because I think lots of people will make it for you, that Trump is just symptom, um, and he is not sort of the driving problem. Uh, and those people believe that there's sort of just this cataclysmic clash of, you know, sort of anti-democratic forces in the United States. Uh, versus sort of uh, classical liberals, and that that fight is going to continue on unabated and perhaps get worse. Uh, and I see that. I see the argument there. But I don't know. I've been uh, I've been impressed. If you, you know, I think four years ago, I predicted Trump would have been less of sort of a systemic disruption in intent. Um, but if you had told me how much he would have been a systemic disruption in intent, I would have said he might have done a lot more damage. Um, I think the American institutions have done uh, well, and sort of, I don't want to see another four years of trying to break them apart, yeah. um, but it doesn't look like you can crush the American system in four years as a proto-demagogue.
3: Yeah, and I mean I'm, I'm resolutely anti-Trump now I was before, but like, boy if you told me that this would be where we're at four years ago, uh, conditional on a Trump election, I would have been very happy about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you know, and, and so you know, one, one thing is like I don't, you know, it's going to be a question that's going to be debated forever and we're never going to know the answer is what would this election look like short of the pandemic? Because everything that came before sort of got washed away and there's and and, and we just don't know. And, and and Trump, you know, I can't, you know, people are like, oh, nothing hurts Trump's numbers, but that's, that's objectively not true. Um, and, uh, you know, the combination of the pandemic and then what the pandemic did to the economy, um, Marginally hurt Trump's numbers, but even more so changed his entire sort of you know st- structural um, explanation of what's going on in America, right? Um, if Trump had been able to run on peace, prosperity, and like the you know the crisis never came that I caused um, or that everyone said I was going to cause, right? Like it's you know I-, I was president, nothing went wrong, right? I could see a very different election happening. So um, I don't know. Uh, uh, eventually all presidents tend to face some sort of crisis that Trump got his in, you know, the spring of an election year uh, and got a really bad crisis um, is is probably uh, bad for Trump, bad for the United States, but uh, maybe fortuitous for Trump's opponents politically.
3: So as we discuss this six days before the election, and by the time listeners are listening to this, it'll be like one day before the yeah, election. or, or election maybe, day's tomorrow. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know it's 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 wednesday evening on Predictit trump is 40 cents uh to 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 win and like he's nowhere near i mean you know you can quibble about what this means and normalize and which price are they quoting but like yeah uh he seems nowhere near two-fifths likely yeah i'm selling rent.
2: that yeah. yeah no i think i do have i have like 50 bucks on Predict it right now and i think <laughs> Full disclosure, uh, it is definitely sold against things like Trump winning this election 40% of the time. Um, but, you know, when you look at that, like, you've got, I mean, predicted is insane. I just don't, I don't, I don't get into the technical arguments about those betting markets. But, um, you know, two things that are absolutely true is one is there, there's just no way that Hillary Clinton is 3% to win this election or whatever. And you can find that market on there. And so there's obviously that some, market on there. <laughs> um. Yeah, and so that kind of market's there. But also, you have to remember, in in a market like that, there's short-term players and long-term players. Um, And if you think the race is going to tighten in the next week for whatever irrational or rational reasons, uh, then maybe Trump at 40% is good within the player pool there. Um, And uh, it kind of reminds me of, like, DFS in some ways. And again, I don't know anything about DFS except... That you're not sort of trying to maximize against reality objectively, you're trying to maximize against the other players in the pool, and that's true of any market, but I think it's particularly true of these betting markets um, about politics, where you're, you know, you can look for these short-term sort of. Uh, technical analysis type plays almost, right, that aren't really based on fundamentals of of long-term things, but just technical analysis of the short term. And uh, I'm speaking far beyond what I know. but That's just sort of my intuition about these things, um, is that maybe Trump is a buy if you're thinking about what's going to happen between now and Saturday. I don't know. Um, But there's no way a buy-and-hold strategy of Trump at 40 cents makes any sense
3: to me. In 25 years, what portion of the kid's uh of of the people in our children's generation will know the rules to cribbage (laughs) Uh,
2: i mean i have no idea i mean i haven't played cribbage since i was i don't know if i could show you how to play cribbage i haven't played since i used to play with my dad a little bit when i was less than 10 so in the mid 80s um I think to a first approximation, the answer will be zero.
3: It, 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 it'll be to their generation what like whist is to ours. Where it's like, like, oh, maybe I've heard like uh, if you're into cards, you might have heard of it. Like.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe that's right. But even like, 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 right. And I, I don't know. I mean, so like whist is sort of a great way to learn how to play a tricks and trumps game because it's so simple. Like it still has some value as like a pedagogical device for teaching people about um you know how, how to get to a more advanced game maybe but yeah i think so right like yeah. i mean well why do you bring this
3: up we've been playing some cribbage I, i've recently been introduced to cribbage and i quite enjoyed it like especially like over the summer like with you know iced tea and and snacks mm-hmm. and cribbage like it's, it's really quite enjoyable uh and i like it but like when i'm playing it it's just like oh this game is just a bag of rules and like in a in a world with league of legends and like infinitely many apps like surely like like a just empirically nobody ever plays it anymore than right. i know of uh, except me uh and b like just the the whole aesthetic behind it like where where part of it is just sort of knowing the game and and you're you're enmeshed in a culture where people learn games with rules just for the sake of it and like oh this is one point this is three points and there's not so much of a grand unified theory behind it it's just sort of what the game is it felt very archaic to me um, yeah. well, very very pleasant, but it felt just completely impossible that, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah I don't know. I mean, I also don't know. Like, it, there's also the phenomena of the homogenization of these sorts of things with the internet, right? Um, and if you're a game that falls behind in the age of the internet, like you're going to become really obscure. Where you might have survived as a regional game yeah. in the '80s, uh, or or whatnot. That I assume like like, I, I do wonder what happens to, like, Euchre with <laughs> like, yeah, this generation, a... right? Like, I mean, I don't mean to throw that in your sort of upstate New York, Michigan wheelhouse, but it is sort of one of those games where it's like, ah, it's fun and it's a really cool tricks and trumps game, but, like, there's probably better ones. And, like, once you have the internet and you can find the better ones, is it really going to be a thing um, in western New York or Michigan or whatever? Um, I don't know. I don't know answer to that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I have a, so, like, it's one, I have a, I have a, I have a Hoyle. You know, just a book of card games from the 40s. I think it was my grandparents. And uh, when you look through that book, you know, there's things in there that weren't played in the 80s. uh, And there was sort of like an emphasis on things in there that weren't quite as popular in the 80s. But largely, like, there wasn't like a huge change. Like, the card games that were playing in the 40s are roughly the card games that were being played in the 80s. Um, And uh, I just don't think that's true that you're going to have that sort of 40-year stasis on something like that right now. It's just something possible. Yep. Yeah.
1: Even within yeah. poker, the games that were played in the 80s are not the games being played now.
2: Right. Although, you know, I, yeah. No, absolutely true. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Let's make of that. So what was being played in the 80s? Obviously on the East Coast, stud and the basic stud variants were dominant. Maybe a little horse and as like a mix. Low ball and in the West Coast, you're playing low ball draw on California, things like that, and limit hold them mostly. Um, with a little bit of tournament no limit thrown in, something like that. Um, yeah, maybe, yeah. jacks are better, maybe. Yeah, yeah, you're, uh, yeah. You definitely play jacks are, be- yeah. you Just the jacks are better. Draw in like Gardenia or whatever, and low ball draw, like California low ball. Um, and some of that I think, right, is also that regionalization and also a function of where public poker was legal. Because I tell you, they're still playing follow the queen now, and they're they're playing that in 1985. Yeah. Um, and so you do have sort of the home game effect, and I don't. I don't wonder what, uh, I, I mean, that's more about sort of like No Limit Hold'em cannibalizing the home games um, Then the public poker rooms were just so limited in the 80s. And even what was legal, right? So you had sort of this like regulatory structure on top of the California games um, before, what, 87? Uh, and so they were playing exclusively draw in California until 87. Um And so that was jacks are better, jackpots, and then low ball draw, I think, uh, mostly. And then in the East Coast, where where was it legal? In Atlantic City, they were playing stud. And then in in Vegas and in the illegal games elsewhere, Hold'em kind of existed. But, yeah, definitely different. But, you know, Nate, you brought this up. I don't know if it was on your guys' podcast or somewhere else that, like, you could build, like, an entire – intellectual history of the development of poker that started after the 80s and you wouldn't miss that much right it's like it's like not really it's not really the same game um in that sense it's like prehistoric in some sense
3: yeah yeah i think who are we talking about that with i think it was on here but i think it was nate silver yeah yeah
1: yeah
3: yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah. have you have have you played any live poker are you still uh i mean i think i know the the maryland casino is up by me or open i don't know is um is national Harbor even open yet?
2: It is open. I haven't, I haven't gone there and I have no desire to go there. Yeah. That, that's um, kind of where I'm at. And, too. Anytime soon. I, I just, I just seems nuts. I mean, and you know, I mean, and certainly, uh, you know, you have more incentive as a professional poker player than I do. Like I have no incentive to go there and just, they you know, play two five for kicks or whatever. Um, I was, I took it upon myself to, I was, I've been playing a little bit on, uh, Bovada. um, and I took it upon myself. I was just like, oh, you know, what I gotta do something to study during the pandemic with poker or bridge or something. And I took it upon myself to start playing um, hyper turbos, uh, just because I think my intent was that, you know, what uh, I'm not my my uh, sort of push fold game is not great, and I would love to work on that. But more, I was like, okay, I just want to like master something uh, in poker and take some time to take a couple months and 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 try and build a mastery of something. So I told myself I was gonna play a thousand um hyper turbos single table six man hyper turbos on Bavada, and i've played about 500 so far and it's been really fun um and like i mean i sit there sit and goes right so it's like uh, you know essentially solved especially at a push fold level sit and go so it's been fun to like play them and uh then go back through ic miser right and look at what i'm doing and sort of get better and i think i have gotten better but it also has just been fun to immerse myself in a, a specific discipline of poker um instead of just sort of like lollygagging from whatever you know i think is interesting at the moment but actually sort of like try and study something systematically so i've really been enjoying that but i haven't played any live poker which is crazy because i just in like march i i got like a new custom chip set to go with the table i built and it's just been sitting here i think i played like five card draw using it with my my daughter or something like it just it's just been sitting here waiting
3: for people to come use it uh sometime soon hopefully next year um the, those are the ones with your dog on them right yes
2: that's right yeah that's There's really nice he's on them right yeah. and so yeah so i haven't uh i've been playing i've been playing uh i'm playing some i play a lot of bridge with my daughter which is like uh fun because she's getting better but also it never it's never truer that like you get real you really know something when you start teaching someone something uh and you have to you have to defend like why you're saying things um <laughs> and uh, teaching Uh, 12 year old who's pretty smart and inquisitive and asks a lot of questions, you know, teaching them like bidding strategy and bridge is like, it's like, it's not high level, but man, does it make me better. Um, And uh, I I can, I can just imagine that like, uh, anyone who takes up like coaching people at poker, like it's probably like almost worth your time and money just to do it to keep yourself improving. Because like just teaching my daughter bridge has made a huge difference in just my clarity of thinking about things too
1: i would say also true for writing a poker book
2: yeah oh man yeah absolutely right like that sounds like right in the wheelhouse um i've 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 ran into that on the political side uh recently because it's funny the election's been coming up but i've spent a lot more time professionally uh thinking about the the supreme court nomination uh just because i've had so many inquiries about sort of rules of procedure in the senate um, and you get the same sort of thing because it's, again, it's it's just a, st- you know, it's just a structure and it's a logical system, but when you explain it to people, it doesn't make any sense really on its face, and they start asking you all these sort of good questions, um, and, and sort of stuff you haven't necessarily confronted before, um, and uh, having to sort of reconcile that to them totally cements it better in your head, and even to the point where I had a couple of eurekas and the details aren't important, but I was like, ah, you know what? There is a reason they would have made that change, right? I think that makes sense to me now, right, Uh, why the rules are that way. I can remember one, just anecdotally, the the, the time this hit home most for me is I had a friend in graduate school in New Haven who who was born in Thailand. Uh, I think his dad was a U.S. serviceman. His mom was Thai or something. And I took him to a baseball game at uh, Yale Yale Field, and uh, he had never really seen baseball much. And he's asking me all these questions that just were sort of like questions you would ask someone that I had never even considered uh, and really – maybe rethink sort of the structure of baseball. He's like, so do the players have to stand where they're standing? And uh I was like, Well, no. He's like, Well why do they stand there? And it's like, I think they think it's just strategically defensively best. Um he's like, but wouldn't it doesn't someone who's smart who understands sort of like the incentive structures of games or uh, you know, political institutions, but doesn't know the details of the one you're explaining to him is like such an awesome way to like Make make you reevaluate your received wisdom
1: about everything.
3: Yeah, I agree. I agree.
1: <laughs> On the subject of the um, of the Supreme Court, you know, one thing, and I guess this is probably prompted by something that you tweeted, although I don't remember exactly what. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of thinking about how old the current like our our current conception of like what the Supreme court is and like what it's supposed to do, what its function is in our, in our democracy, like yeah. how, how old that is. Um, I mean, would you say it goes back to like the forties or fifties and the, the court is a pretty different institution before then? Or do you think it's like even more recent than that? Well, I don't know. So, you know, I don't,
2: I'm not a court historian or a court scholar in any way, but I do. One thing I do think is that, um, and I might have tweeted this out, I, I think a lot of liberals make a distinct mistake is where they see the court as sort of a protector of liberal rights. Uh, and that point of view about the court really emanates from the Earl Warren court. Um, Warren was nominated by Eisenhower, and he was the chief justice for the Brown decision in the 50s, and, and subsequently, a, a very strong champion of, of, the, of, the, of the civil rights decisions the court made and a lot of other liberal rights in the 60s. Uh, and that sort of like is the frame of reference. I think a lot of liberals and a lot of other people bring to the court in general, but that is not sort of like the traditional role of the court uh, in American history. The traditional role of the court in American history has typically been a uh, conservative court that has stymied sort of progressive values coming out of the legislature. Uh, and, and so I think it's a mistake to sort of believe that either the court uh, is sort of a place that is going to be helpful to progressive causes or even like has the capacity to be. Uh, more often than not, it stood in the way of those things in American history. I think in general, uh, you know, the federal government did less before the New Deal. And so the court was sort of not less involved in national politics, but less involved in your life just because the federal government was less involved in your life, certainly before the Civil War. Um, the court was, uh, was very different. You know, the court invalidated only two acts of Congress, I think two major acts of Congress between 1789 and the war. Uh, one was the Judiciary Act of 1789, which um, is relatively important for our purposes, but the other was the Dred Scott decision, and that was overturned by essentially constitutional amendment. Um, and so the court was not sort of a major player in invalidating congressional statutes uh, in the 19th century. Um, and when it did... It became sort of, you know, a major uh, piece of consternation. You you know, you know, basically gutting the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1875 um, in 1883, uh, invalidating the income tax uh, in the 1880s, uh, invalidating the maximum uh, hours laws in the states, and the Lochner decision in the early 1900s. So you know, it's a series of of cases, and initially invalidating sort of New Deal legislation in the early 30s before sort of Roosevelt got enough appointments and was able to threaten them bad enough with court packing. Um, And so, you know, to see the court as sort of this sort of arch defender of liberal rights because of the Brown decision and because of the uh, Griswold and Roe decisions and the one-man-one vote decision in the early 60s and things like that, and the First Amendment decisions that have come up, and more recently the Second Amendment decisions, um, probably isn't isn't your best frame of reference for the court. Um, And uh, I think I'm probably in general agreement with with uh, most i think people who who think about this stuff is that the court is probably too involved in public policy it's hard to avoid it but if you know if if the court was less active and took fewer cases it's not clear that um We would be worse off right if the legislatures were just doing more legislating um certainly i think court decisions are bad substitutes for legislative enactments like if you can achieve the same thing through the legislature you absolutely want to Um, it's just a more satisfying political victory and it leaves people with the feeling that if they lost they have a chance to win again Um, sometimes the court finality on these decisions is what causes the consternation and certainly that's been the case with the abortion decisions Um, In Europe, you know, they sort of meandered towards a middle ground on abortion where it's legal, but there's lots of restrictions on it, and that's kind of where people like it. In the United States, we kind of sort of flash froze it as sort of very permissive, um, and the legislatures weren't really allowed to get to sort of where it probably would have gotten in the United States, too, which is legal but with lots of restrictions, and you can see sort of the battle that resulted from that, and it's not particularly different with the segregation decisions. Um, It caused an absolute uproar in the South. Now, that was a different situation because there was a logjam and legislatively you weren't getting anywhere on that. Um, but sometimes I have misgivings about the courts, even in decisions I substantially agree with, like the gay marriage decision... Um, we were very quickly and very steadily heading towards legalized gay marriage all around the United States. And there was going to be some recalcitrant states, but a court decision like is I'm all well and good with the substance of it. I agree with sort of the principle, um, but you know, man would have preferred it if it had been enacted in the state legislatures instead. Um, And part of that is my legislative bias. I I like legislatures, but uh, some of it's the courts too. It's just, and it's become such a, such a political football in Washington. I, uh, I don't I don't really believe that, like, there's going to be a huge liberal response to, like, pack the courts. Um, It just doesn't it doesn't feel like that's going to happen to me next uh, next next spring, even conditional on Biden win the presidency and the Democrats winning a large number of Senate seats. Um, It just it doesn't seem like a Biden type thing. It's not who he's been his whole life. And it also doesn't seem to me the thing that's going to be particularly popular at all. In fact, I think it's going to be overwhelmingly unpopular. And I think it's going to be low down the list of January or February objectives for a Biden administration and for a Democratic Congress. Um, There'll be people kicking and screaming on the left. But I think this is an issue that probably, as a process issue, divides the progressives pretty good from the mainstream Democrats. And uh, Biden's nothing if he's not a mainstream Democrat. And the mainstream Democrats are going to be the ones who hold the balance of power in the Senate. So I, I don't expect, I don't expect, you know. Radical sort of hardball on the court coming out.
1: I think related to what you were saying a, a bit earlier about the the role of the court. I think there, there's a sense on the left now of like, oh, if there's a conservative majority in the court, there's just like there's no accountability for that. These people are appointed for for yeah. life. There's no checks or balances yeah. on on the things that they do. Um, c- yeah. Can you talk? I mean, I, I think we we did have this conversation previously around the kavanaugh appointment but you can you talk a little bit about like what are the informal constraints on like from from a game theory perspective like what what keeps the court from just sort of like doing whatever the hell they want once they have a majority so the one you know the one that is hotly debated is
2: sort of the issue of so-called court legitimacy right the court can't enforce its own decisions right there's that famous quote from or maybe a apocryphal, but the famous quote from President Jackson in the 30s, John like, Marshall's made his decision, he can go enforce it, right? Um, so in some sense, there's this issue of how does the court enforce its decisions? And so the, the basic theory from a game theory perspective is that they have sort of a public legitimacy um, and they do things to try and maintain that legitimacy and that keeps other actors in line with their decisions, right? If the public believes in the courts, then other actors are going to feel compelled to follow suit with the court. And so like the classic example is, the Brown decision in, 50, in 53, that was a 9-0 decision, and Warren was hellbent on making that a 9-0 decision. He wanted, like, the full force of that decision coming out of the courts. Uh, and he did, and the Southerners still, like, rejected it, basically, and wouldn't comply. Uh, but Eisenhower, you know, eventually sends troops to Little Rock. Right. As a show of force, like we mean business here, like the rule of law is the rule of law. And, you know, Ike is, you know, Ike is not a segregationist per se, but he grew up with segregation and he's not a big civil rights guy. Uh, but he sent the, the he sent the troops down. Now, if that decision's five, four and there's a four person minority in the court writing all about how segregation is totally fine in the Constitution. Right. You're still going to get this explosion in the south. But does Ike send the troops? I don't know. Right. And so right there you can sort of feel the legitimacy. Right. In that story, that if, if the court is badly divided and the public sees it as a partisan institution and they're doing these decisions that don't seem to be at all rooted in anything reasonable, will the executive branch of the federal government, will, the, will, will they enforce their decisions? Will the state governments listen to their decisions? Will people reject their decisions? And so I think that's sort of one angle to it. Uh, and you can see sort of Chief Justice Roberts is painstakingly aware of this uh, and does everything he can. To sort of steer the court away from uh, decisions that uh, sort of may shock the conscience in that sense, or and you know, and tries to write opinions that are very careful about those sorts of things, and tries to corral the court about what decisions it takes. Um, And the sort of more like longstanding piece of this is that no matter how nakedly partisan the court might be, right, they are always painfully trying to couch the decisions in precedent and into. You know, solid logic about the Constitution, right? Because like, you can imagine if five people in the court just made a decision and were just like, you know, F you, this is what we're doing, this side wins, too bad, right? Like that is going to be roundly rejected by other political actors and might trigger the true sort of game theoretic problem for the court, which is that Congress has control over that court ultimately, right? Um, the court exists uh, within the separation of power system, but... You know, we always talk about, like, the three branches of government as if they're co-equal. Sometimes we say they're co-equal, but they're not really co-equal. Congress can sit in existential judgment of the other two branches. Um, And so Congress is absolutely first among equals. If Congress wants, it can remove actors in the other branches. Uh, It can radically change the other branches. Um, And so the court knows that if it does something too out of line, uh, and you can see this historically, right, that you you may get a response from Congress to either do things like expand the court, which Congress has the power to do, uh, to limit the jurisdiction of the court, which Congress also has the power to do, um, or to lead a political revolt against the court and further delegitimize it. Um, And so I think, you know, I think the chief justice is um, probably quite concerned tonight about what's going on with the court um, and trying to, you know, make sure that he is, you know, faithful to his judicial ideology, but also very much faithful to the idea that he's a political actor who's trying to preserve an institution's power. Um, And, you know, it's going to come to a head. Uh, You know, you hear a lot of conservatives say, oh, they're disappointed in Roberts because he's had some more liberalish decisions since he got on the court. He's really not the hardcore conservative they were hoping he would be. Um, And some of that may be because he's not the hardcore conservative they were hoping he would be. But some of it may also be because he was the swing vote um, on the court. And he was looking to protect the court as much as he was looking to sort of um, shape public policy and uh, interpret the laws. He saw it. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, that was very, uh, very yeah. eloquently said. Thank you.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think I
2: think the threats are overblown, though. I was I've been talking to a lot of people about this in the Senate. Is that, you know, there is this sort of so-called nuclear option in the Senate where you abolish the filibuster through this backdoor method, where it only takes a majority to do it. Um, and, and the details of it aren't particularly important here, but a lot of people say, well, why is it called the nuclear option? Well, it's called the nuclear option. Cause everyone always said, as soon as someone did it, the other side would just go nuclear. Like the minority that got that done to them would just start doing things in the Senate that absolutely destroyed the place. They would start demanding every single motion, have a roll call vote. They would they would object to every single unanimous consent request. They would totally jam the place up. And you know what? They didn't. It happened in 2013 when the Democrats got rid of the filibuster for executive branch nominees and local court, lower court nominees. And in 2017, when the Republicans applied that same principle to the Supreme court, you know, people didn't blow up, right? All of these sort of political actions you might take, or these worries that someone's going to respond in an extreme way are always countered by sort of the consequences of doing that in the public sphere. Um, And if you blockade the Senate over some procedural change, that has sort of the overall veneer of, like, majoritarianism, which people tend to like, um, you're going to look bad in public. Wait, why are they tying up the Senate? Oh, because the other side made it possible for a majority to pass a bill. Well, isn't that how it's supposed to be, right? And so, like, you get sort of these ideas that, you know, you can play a lot of hardball, but hardball has consequences. And court packing is an example of this where I think it's going to be so unpopular uh, in the general public that a lot of Democrats aren't going to want to touch it with a 15-foot pole. Uh, now, that said, things have been trending the other direction in the last two weeks, but I think that was a lot of heightened rhetoric before the election. Um, if the if the 50th most liberal Democrat in the Senate becomes a fan of court packing, I am going to suspect that uh, something really radical happened in the interim. Um, and this is why the court is going to be careful. I, like, it's not the worst thing in the world to threaten to pack the court if you are planning on passing a major new Voting Rights Act that the court might otherwise be s- skeptical of. Um, and so you can, you know, you can play that game as a bluff too. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we'll see. And I think, I think, you know, I, I don't think all the Democrats are bluffing. I think some really want to pack the court, but I think some of them may not know they're bluffing, but may like sort of the saber rattling of it as a way to sort of try and browbeat the court. Um, and FDR very, very, you know, very consciously was doing this with his court packing plan in the thirties as well. Um, you know, trying to send a shot across the bow. Um, and you know. So we'll see. We'll see. But I, I just—it's uh, going to take a major court decision that is absolutely beyond the pale, I think, to get the Democrats actually moving on expanding the court.
3: That's really good. That's yeah. it, it, it was said of one of my professors once that uh, if you came to him with a question, he would either—but by the end of his answer, he would either answer it so completely you had no follow-ups. <laughs> or reveal it as misguided so thoroughly yeah. that 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 you also had no follow-ups. And uh, anyway, that was a good answer. Several yeah, answers, yeah. Have been very good. Uh, yeah. That's,
2: uh, the, so, the so I got a question for you guys. How are you planning to consume the election returns
3: on Tuesday? I mean, it's a Tuesday, so like I'm okay. So like it's the middle of a pandemic. I got a kid and stuff to do. Like I'm gonna be. I'm going to be working furiously uh, mm-hmm. until I, I pick my son up from school. Then I'm going to do that. And I'm going to feed him lunch. <laughs> and Then we're going to do stuff in the afternoon. Like, so I will be like, I might just have your Twitter feed yeah. up. Like, <laughs> like, our, like honestly, probably like refreshing the Wall Street Journal uh, every so yeah. often. And then like maybe. So here's here's a pro tip, not pro tip. Here's how I like to consume Twitter. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I made um, a list that is just people whom I think have a certain regard for the mental health of their readers. Um, mm-hmm. And this is like hard for me to put a finger on, but like it's just um, people who aren't trying to inflict a certain kind of of pain or or aggression on on their readers. And right. and it's a very select list. And I actually now almost never look at my main timeline. That's how I look at Twitter. So I will probably refresh that list and occasionally dip into the wall street journal. But other than that, like I'm just going to be busy. Like, like after I put my son to bed, then I might do a deep dive somewhere. But yeah, I think is
2: yeah. Some people are like, you know, like got to sit alone in the dark with like a television screen or something. Like they can't be around like people who are into politics are just really like invested in the election or like that. Um, other people are like without the pandemic are like the kind of people who like to like be with like a hundred people at some bar in DC or whatever. Um, I've always been kind of in the middle. I like to have like some people over, but I wouldn't want to be at like campaign headquarters with like a thousand of my best friends or whatever. Um but this year is kind of different in that like this is you know, normally I advise people like don't like don't you dare turn your television on during the day. Like it's just complete nonsense, right? Like it's absolutely sort of inane. Uh, And not helpful to understand, although I do think that with the sort of uh, extra trappings this year of the long lines of vote and sort of this long shot, but sort of like latent idea that there might be some violence or other problems at polling sites. uh, I think it actually the reporting during the day might actually be interesting to watch uh, or informative about sort of how uh, the process of the election is taking place. I still don't recommend the television (laughs) for any of that stuff. Uh, but I usually try not to pay too much attention at all uh, before the polls close, uh, just because the sort of, you know, Blair Witch style release of the supposed exit polls from this state or that district are just too much for me to bear um, without getting sort of reality. But, uh, you know, obviously with the pandemic, I'm just going to be I don't know. I was thinking about doing a big backyard thing. I have a projector screen now in my backyard, like one of those projectors and i was thinking about inviting like a bunch of people over but i think it's gonna be freezing cold here so let me just watch my kids my kids are also old enough now to like care um which has totally changed uh how i go about consuming this stuff i used to be like one of these people i surround myself with like laptops and printouts and all sorts of stuff at nine o'clock at night uh but i think it's much more gonna be a family affair this time man explaining to my kids that clinton didn't win in 16 when they woke up in the morning was the first time I ever like disappointed my kids with politics, I have three little girls and they didn't, I don't know, they knew they didn't like Trump, but they really just liked the idea of a woman being president. I think I don't think they had any sort of ideological play behind it, but man, they had like Clinton posters in their room and stuff. And when they said, they said, did Clinton win? And I said, no, I was, I was this is the worst bearer of bad news. I think I've ever been a part of, I was like trying to tell that to
3: like a five-year-old or six-year-old or whatever is awful. Ouch.
2: Yeah, it was not good. And so, uh, and so, I, I mean, they're much more sort of politically sophisticated. I've actually, I've, been, I did a couple talks with their Girl Scout troops, um, which is really hilarious in Northern Virginia because, it's like, oh, you're gonna go talk to the, you know, fifth grade Girl Scouts about the election. It's like you expect sort of a certain level of political knowledge. And then in Northern Virginia, you get some of these kids who are like 10 years old and just know so much about politics. Right? It's very disconcerting, right? Like I, the first question I got in the Q and A, I did a little talk with the electoral college. And one of the first questions I got was like, well, how come Maine and Nebraska do it differently? And like, I had not mentioned that at all. Right. That was yeah. just like off the cuff. Um, And obviously, you know, there's a lot of kids around here whose parents are involved in politics or whatever, but they also have various like strong opinions about like, governor's races and things like that which is kind of strange to hear from people who are in fifth grade because when i I was in fifth grade i think i was right after the 88 election i think i knew about like the president stuff but i would never have been able to tell you about any sort of the details of politics whatsoever and i was like i was like you know i was
3: enmeshed in sort of local politics because of
2: you know where i lived and my family
3: yeah at that age i was like into ross perot because he was like the sort of funny guy who ranted about charts on tv and i like math you know it's like <laughs> oh yeah there's this like like random outsider who's right? like personable and you know, he's, he's like buying up entire half hours of prime time and, and ranting about charts that you can't really see uh it's- <laughs> that, that, that is sort of like that is sort of the trump insight um
2: and and and, and, and sort of like this idea of like a billionaire's Maybe Trump's a billionaire or not or whatever, but very rich people trying to short circuit the political process by using their own wealth or their own fame or whatever. And the Perot model of doing it as an independent um, clearly seems inferior to sort of the, the Trump model of trying to get inside the party as an outsider. Um, now, you know, the party may have better gatekeeping ability in the past or maybe even in the future, but it certainly seems that that model And whether you're, you know, Perot or Steve Forbes or or Donald Trump or Mark Cuban, like, or, or, you know, Mike Bloomberg or whatever, that actually trying to harness the political party is a much better strategy than trying to run as like an independent billionaire. Um, And, you know, the independent billionaire can put his charts on TV and get the half hour ads and say both parties are terrible. But it turns out, like Trump proved, you can do that from within the party. So you can also harness sort of the basic partisanship of the system, too. Uh, to, to solve a lot of the problems that those independent candidates have with ballot access and sort of the uh, co-partisanship of low-information voters and things
3: like that. Yeah, and like, to me there seems to be a simple point that like, party politics is different from other aspects of politics, but it can't be that much harder to, you know, sort of, win a party than it is to win the whole country right so like right. why not like so like the, the 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 probability that you can become the nominee of a major party times the probability that you win the election if you are that nominee seems to be like so much larger than the probability yeah. that you can win the election without having been able to uh become yeah i mean you you, you know what i'm saying um, yeah
2: absolutely i mean i think it also i guess it also depends on what your objective is but um if your objective is come president and certainly for sure it seems like going the party routes better particularly as the parties you know as the, you know the independents sort of have this idea that well like more people are dis, disaffected from both parties and 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 sort of telling pollsters that they're independent Tendon or whatever, and so the idea is to kind of scoop them up in the middle or something, but it's really not a practical strategy when you really break down the numbers, because so many people lean towards one party or the other that you're really not going to be able to get that broad middle anyway, and as the party sort of polarize, like you're definitely not going to be able to get serious partisans of, of, of both parties either, and so even if there was sort of this triangulation strategy of once upon a time, it seems absolutely inferior than sort of just harnessing the party, and Trump is a great example of this, because you know, Trump Trump had, you know, during the primaries when they were still competitive in 16, you know, a quarter or a third of the Republican electorate was very much pro-Trump and very seriously pro-Trump and a little more, I mean, some other percentage was soft of it. But once you do that, like, and once you win, then you automatically get, you get this nice payoff of most of the rest of the party um, that doesn't love you, but prefers you in sort of the heads up race against the other party. Um, and that it's, you know, and, and of course, that can all, you know, and then that coalition holds together sort of electorally. But once it's, once that comes crashing down, man, it's going to be really interesting to see sort of how the Republican Party splinters and how fast it splinters. Um, uh, the, you know, the famous anecdote is you know, Tim Alberta, who's a wonderful journalist at Politico um, and a great follow on Twitter. He, um, he, he was with Paul Ryan on election night in 2016. And he always he tells a story about how Ryan literally had a speech in his pocket um, ready to just eviscerate Trump. Uh, and talk about how Trumpism is just a disaster for the country and the Republican Party now needs to move on from it and clearly can't win with it. And uh, so, you know, Ryan obviously didn't give that speech, but clearly Ryan thought that. And if Trump goes down in flames, you know, on Tuesday, um, then a lot of those speeches are going to come back out of the pockets. Um, And there will be people who try to pick up the pieces of Trumpism, too, or some different brand of Trumpism. I'm not sure you can duplicate. Uh, Trumpism per se the way Trump did, uh, because I, I do think that he has uh, some attributes that are, you know, just in a neutral sense, um, not good or bad, but just effective that other people don't have. Um, and uh, But the, the piece of his ideology uh, certainly will be picked up, uh, and you can already see that in some prominent Republican senators who might be interested in running for the presidency, be it sort of Josh Haw- Hawley or Tom Cotton, Uh, and even a little bit in Ted Cruz, where there is this sort of uh, rejection of sort of the liberal consensus and neoliberal economics, uh, and an interest in using sort of the the tools of the state uh, to drive uh, more anti-capitalist policies. Um, And and that's sort of an older tradition in some ways than the the contemporary liberal tradition. Uh, um, on the right in in america and there's gonna be a battle royal because there's also this massive contingent of business republicans who just want to get rid of that um
3: you know romney being sort of a great example of that yeah it's i do think like people of our generation are going to have like whether you like or very very strongly dislike trump um We're going to have Trump memories the way some people have, like, Johnny Carson memories or Elvis (laughs) memories. Or it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, everybody knows the greatest hits, but, like, like we have our own, like, idiosyncratic taste in, like, Trump speeches. Like, me, I'm always, like... Like, for me, it's the one where he started ranting about Elton John. At, uh, <laughs> and, and of, like, like, this is the greatest, like, this is the greatest instrument, the mouth. And, like, it, it just, like, it's, and, like, you yes. know, like, objectively, it's no wackier or less wacky. It's just, like, right. man, it's, like, remember that time he started ranting about Elton John in the middle of what was supposed to be a very focused speech? Like, huh. there, there, there's so much. you. For- I was
2: going through my Twitter feed, and I was looking back at 2017, and there's just so much you forget. Um, and, you know, I, I do think it'll be interesting to see what 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 absorbs of the Trump style, because he certainly has some insights into politics uh, that people are going to pick up on. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that people are just going to decide didn't work. I think the idea of the president of the United States being in your face on Twitter on a daily basis is ultimately going to be rejected as a savvy style for a president. Um, And maybe that's right. Maybe it's wrong. But the rejection of Trump stylistically, I think you're going to see that. And and Biden certainly feels like the type of president, if he wins on Tuesday, who won't be in your face on Twitter constantly. And if he is, it'll be in a very sort of traditional politician way. The thing that I always laugh about that I just saw when I was looking back, and I forget about it constantly. I see it is the time uh, Trump had some winning sports team at some winning college sports team at the White House and he served them just a massive order of McDonald's.
3: Yeah, yeah, it, was like, during, it, it was during it was during the shutdown. I think he paid for
2: it out of his own pocket. Yeah, like it was like yeah. in the blue room with the it's like in the blue room with the White House. Very were neat, right? It was it was beautiful cl- walls, Clemson,
3: right? Cle- Clemson football, it might I have think.
2: been. Yeah, it might have been Clemson football, right? Right after, right? And and then you just have this like table with like a white tablecloth and some sort of like beautiful centerpiece, and then just these boxes of Big Macs sitting there. Yeah,
3: right? yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> and he's like presiding over it in like I don't know if it's a tuxedo or just a pretty nice business suit, and it just. I don't know, that's the one that always gets me. Every time every yeah. time I see that, it's like, that happened. Um, and, uh, you know, in some ways, it's great, right? Like, it's like, this is a politician who's an entrepreneur and figuring out a way to sort of connect in some odd way. But, you know, as, as usual with sort of these sort of populist figures, it is going to be a um, contradiction that our grandkids are going to just absolutely not be able to solve about sort of like the populist connection of the, you know, New York billionaire um, with the alleged base of sort of the the poor working class white midwesterner or southerner, um, and uh, and even having lived through it now, I'm not quite sure I understand it in any <laughs> in any real way except to say that it happened. Yeah, um, and
3: like uh, yeah. yeah, like Liberace or something like that's that's a hard <laughs> one to wrap wrap one's head around. Like it's right. I was kind of with Liberace, you know? But yeah, you yeah, know, something, um, something. Yeah. So I, so yeah, go. Ahead. I was going to say I, I do in fact have a hard stop at eight fifteen. So uh, right. thanks for uh, th- Andrew, thanks for letting me somewhat monopolize the conversation so far. Uh, but I should I should run and, and leave the rest to you guys. But it's been a complete pleasure as always. But you're yeah, you about to ask a question. Name. You you're yeah. about to ask a question.
2: Well, I was going to say like so. I remember when uh, when I was in the show in twenty sixteen, we had a wonderful like tail between our legs episode after the election. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey. It was in the lame. It was in the Obama lame duck It was before. It was definitely before. Uh, Trump took office. And uh, and uh, it's funny because, of course, that could happen to us again. But uh, I I get the sense this time it's not going to. I think um, I think uh, I I think we're going to be coming back next year to a new political world that is not going to include Trump. And uh, I think it's, you know, one thing about elections is that obviously they change who's in government. But they also change how all the existing players think about the government. Uh, and think about their future possibilities. And so I think there's a lot of results, a lot of pass of the Game Tree Tuesday. They could have a lot of people thinking about a lot of uh, different things coming out of it. So it'll be fun to see.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. Have a good
1: evening. Take okay. yep. care. So yeah, I mean, this was this was why I gave you the option of if you wanted to come on before after the, the election to spare you having to do the, uh, it wasn't a walk back, but you know, like like you said, we had, we had to do last time. Um, do, do you want to say a little bit more about Why? I mean, obviously, like the the uh, answer from the the sort of snarky right or whatever is always like, oh, yeah, Hillary was going to win last time for sure, too. You know, like what's um, what would you say is is different this time?
2: Well, I think uh, largely two things. Um, One is that uh, Biden's lead, uh, both in the national polling and in the important state level polling, is significantly larger than Clinton's lead in was in 16. Now, I think a lot of people had gotten complacent in 16 and just figured there's no way Trump can win. Clinton's got a lead, so she's going to win. And they sort of wrote it off. Uh, No one's doing that this time, of course, but the lead is bigger, right? Um, So if the polls were off as much as they were in 16 in the same direction, if they were off that much now, Biden would still win by a significant portion. Uh, But the second factor that's important is that, the pollsters have corrected their polling mistakes from 16. Uh, One of the big problems that was uncovered in the state-level polls uh, was that they they didn't weight their samples on education, and now a lot more of them do do that. So the polls are not even more in favor of Biden, but they are also corrected for the problems of 16. If you put sort of the polling frame of 2016 onto the current election, Biden would have even bigger lead uh, in some cases. And so those two things sort of just as a mathematical level – Uh, just reduce the odds. Uh, And, you know, at this point, with six days left, there's not a whole lot that can change sort of the structure of the election. What you're really talking about is, are the polls off? And could they be off enough to have Trump win? Yes, but it's just that much less likely. Uh, One thing that wasn't off in 16 was the national polling. Uh, And the national polling at the time of the election, four years ago, uh, had Clinton winning by like, I think two and a half points or something like that, uh, and she ended up winning by two points uh, in the national polling. Uh, Biden's lead in national polling right now is significantly higher than that. I don't know what it is currently, but it's it's multiples of that, um, and so uh, that suggests that the odds of Trump winning are uh, are significantly lower. I think the other thing uh, going on is that. The last week of the election in 2016 featured a major sort of changing event, which was the Comey letter about the Clinton scandals. And uh, two ways to think about that are, one, it doesn't seem like that sort of noise is mattering now. So there's not going to be as much change in the election. And and even if it did come into play, it would still leave Biden with sort of a a sizable lead. I, I think one problem the Trump campaign had is that they learned the wrong lesson in 16. And, you know, it's so hard to judge because campaigns that lose or are losing are always seen as disasters and campaigns that win are always seen as sort of like geniuses. So this isn't to say anything like terrible about the Trump campaign, but it really does feel like they are in some ways a one-trick pony and they thought they were going to be able to scandalize Biden in the same way they did Clinton. And uh, I think they just underestimated how much of that in 16 was their own, like, good job doing that and how much was sort of baked into the cake of people who already didn't like Clinton and were ready for any scandal to sort of just crush her. Um, Biden's favorables. And this is is two crazy things about this election from my point of view, is that one is that Biden's favorables have increased during the election and are over 50%. I would not have guessed that. Uh, I would have told you that we would have had another election where neither candidate um, had majority sort of uh, approval from the public and that both were in like the 40s. And there were people who didn't like either of them. And those people are going to decide the election. That's not true this time. Biden's favorables are over 50 percent. Uh, the second thing that is absolutely astounding this election is that demographically, uh, Biden has significantly cut into Trump's lead with white voters, particularly white seniors. Uh, but Trump has gained ground among minority voters. Uh, and that sort of goes counter to the vast majority of sort of the narratives you can imagine coming uh over the last four years about what might happen in this election, where we thought we might see sort of a more streaming out of that, uh, uh, based on sort of the Trump policies and the politics of the last four years. So all those things are very surprising. Um, uh, and, and, and things that, you know, we'll have to grapple with, uh, particularly after the election, when we see how it actually shakes out in the voting booth, but uh, sort of realities of American politics. One explanation for the latter, for the demographic thing, is that the gender gap may simply be uh, expanding in a way we can't believe. And that uh, African-American men are pulling towards Trump, uh, not the same degree white men are, but sort of on the margin the same way. Uh, and that uh, white women are just turned off by Trump um, to a degree that uh, we didn't believe possible, uh, even, four, even four years ago when uh, they already exhibited sort of uh, a major gender gap.
1: You um, retweeted an article. It wasn't clear what your, <laughs> what your stance on it was but you, you retweeted a piece i think it was from a publication called the week um today about uh sort of a, a, a scenario of i guess you could say stealing the election or, or a, a kind of um of i don't know what you would call it a, a, conspiracy to try to count the votes in, in a specific way and then you know, stop counting the votes at a, at a specific time. I mean, what do you make mm-hmm. of this concern about, um, you know, tr- trying to kick sand around the the like mail-in voting and, and kind of delegitimize the, um, the, the results of uh, elections in, in various states?
2: Uh, I think it's probably real, but overstated. Uh, I think that You know, if the current polling is correct, like, say, the current polling is dead correct, or if the polling is wrong in the Biden direction, which, of course, is always possible polling, you know, year to year, the polling goes wrong in both directions. Um, If the current polling is correct, then none of this matters because Biden is going to win so substantially that sort of these sort of issues probably won't matter enough anywhere to make a difference. Uh, That said, at the margins, I think they matter a lot. I think, you know, I don't, there's few things I get really worked up about in American politics, but one is that I think our voting systems um, are an embarrassment uh, and completely unbecoming of sort of the, the, the stable, you know, really shining republic that we are or could be in America. Um, and I think it's complete embarrassment that we have sort of the voting systems we do in this decentralized state process with, you know, Ridiculous uh, barriers to voting and incredibly uh, crazy state laws, and sort of a system that encourages people to attempt to win uh, by getting more votes, but by limiting who does vote. I think that's terrible. Uh, as to the actual sort of like concerns right now, I see them as more sort of marginal effects than sort of grand conspiracy theory. I think sort of the you know the worst fear conspiracy theories are that like you know, one state's going to matter, like Pennsylvania, Um, and that, you know, you could sort of get some court decisions that are friendly to you to sort of stop counting votes and not necessarily change the outcome, but make the outcome unknown so that the Pennsylvania state legislature would feel compelled to assign electoral votes themselves and things like that. And I guess that's plausible. I mean, I think one thing that's absolutely true, and there's nothing you can do about it, is that when an election truly is very close in a state, right, it's not discerning the winner is not possible. Florida in 2000, right? Who won that? I could never tell you, right? Like, it's it's not discernible. It was a tie for all intents and purposes. Um, now, what we're talking about, you know, or what a lot of liberals are worried about now is something quite different from that. And that is the creation of a tie through sort of nefarious means. And I don't focus so much on actual sort of stealing the election more than structural things. To me, the big story is not illegal sort of corruption in the system it's the story is like the shocking thing is what's legal and the fact that people feel compelled to wait online to vote is just completely embarrassing to me um, and the fact that people have to separately register in states or have sort of any kind of hurdles put in their way in political participation I don't think is good uh, but to me that is a bigger issue than um, the possibility of, of ballots being sort of um, rejected in nefarious partisan ways um, it's always true someone has to count the ballots Right. But for the most part, um, I've always found that the people who administer elections are nonpartisan and really trying to do the best job they can. Some of the state laws are hideous, right, where ballot signatures have to match up perfectly. uh, And those are bad state laws and they're designed to to you know, discourage people from vote and make it tough to vote and throw ballots out. But that isn't the same as saying this particular election is going to be monkeyed with by people who are intending to cause havoc. Um, That I'm less sort of concerned about. And again, like, I I don't think the election is going to be close enough where this is going to come into play. But, you know, who knows? I uh, certainly would encourage anyone to uh, vote as soon as they can in any state that has early voting and, um, you know, drop your ballot off if you're all concerned about mail ballots and things like that. Um, but again, I, I think in general, the gamesmanship concerns are a little overplayed.
1: My uh, answer to your earlier question about how I'm going to be consuming uh, Election Day results is uh, volunteering in a voter protection um, database is, is quite the right word. You know, like Our, our role is really just gathering data on when, when people are reporting. Um, any sort of incident at a, at a polling place, long lines, oh, that's great. or, or and things it, closed, or something. just sort of gathering that, that data and, and funneling it to a, a team mm-hmm. of lawyers who are kind of around to either respond in real time or you know prepare whatever response.
3: Yeah,
2: that's great, and I think it sucks that that has to exist, but I'm glad you're doing it. Um,
1: uh, and you do that in Maryland? Uh, it's it's nationwide. It, it's it's through okay. the uh, victory 2020, the Biden campaign. Yep. Yeah.
2: yeah. No, I mean, I think,
1: uh, like, obviously,
2: obviously, like, it would be a better system if that sort of stuff didn't have to exist, but the fact that it does have to exist, uh, that's a great thing to volunteer for. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, again, it's also the case that people um, need to separate sort of like their sort of normative vision from reality our, our voting system sucks it's terrible it should be a lot better it could be a lot better really easily that's different from saying you can never be perfect um it's never going to be perfect and uh we shouldn't aim for it to be perfect but there's so many easy changes we could make um that would uh allow it to be better uh relatively quickly and you know and the and the problem is no different than anything else in politics is that a lot of actors are incentivized not to make it better because they benefit from the current status quo uh, and would benefit even more from making it worse. Um, and uh, And so I do, you know, as much as I, I don't think it's going to be a specific problem on Tuesday with massive sort of like gamesmanship or fraud in voting. I do think that uh, you know uh, Republicans currently benefit from making it tougher to vote in a lot of places um and uh and so they have strategically taken that up and i don't say that in a way that like they're evil people or immoral because i've seen plenty of situations at the local level or state level where democrats benefit from fewer people voting and and they've done the same thing it's not sort of a partisan morality thing um but certainly it is it is a um it is a really sort of amoral way to be to to be trying to win elections even if you have justifications of it's for the greater good uh, to be sort of messing with sort of those underlying democratic values. And I think that's one thing the Democrats kind of on their side right now is that, you know, playing hardball, everyone can play hardball in politics and really put the screws to people. But when you're playing hardball on behalf of underlying sort of democratic values that resonate with people, um, it, it can be easier. And so, you know, if the Democrats have to play hardball to sort of shore up voting systems or voting rights in the United States, um, that'll be an easier sell. Than playing hardball to sort of hurt those things, um, which is which is good, which is what you want, it is how you want the system to be. I do think that uh, I do think that the Democrats will take up sort of voting rights uh, next year, um, and who knows where that could lead? Uh, you know, the United States had a decentralized system for the longest time, with sort of federal involvement a little bit in the protection of voters who might be getting like defrauded by their own state. But, you know, we've never had anything approaching a truly sort of like nationalized voting system. And there's pluses and minuses to it. But the current patchwork system is just it's just not to my taste. I, I know there are sort of negative negative things about centralizing a voting system up to and including some people's fears of like putting the Trump administration's Justice Department in charge of voting. But I do think a set of better national standards for the administration of elections uh, or tougher standards and tougher regulations is is long overdue and uh, I, I hope that uh, I hope that that comes next year after this is over because it is it is insane sort of like the required mobilization effort right now needed to get people to vote um, and, and 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 part of this is that like I just want people to be able to participate in politics more and, and there's lots of ways to participate in politics, but voting is definitely a crucial one uh, and it should be the easiest one um, and, uh, and currently it's not.
1: Do you think there's anything to the, I mean, I guess essentially elitist argument of um, the, you know, more participation in politics is not necessarily good, like having some barrier to entry might actually push out people who are um, kind of like less informed or maybe, you know, if, if people aren't willing to go to some effort to vote, like maybe we're better off without right. them voting anyway?
2: Yeah, I mean, I certainly you can construct scenarios where that's true. I think, you know, you can construct scenarios where um, where you can show that it would like empirically maybe be better. Particularly, this comes up in local stuff sometimes, like. Um, but I, I don't. I don't think that. I think that's a very dangerous path to go down, uh, because that quickly turns into a justification for uh, what amounts to sort of class-based oligarchy. Um, and democracy has lots of flaws, right? Like, there's lots of problems with democratic structures but they tend to be not as bad as the flaws of alternative systems. Um, And look, you know, England, which was undoubtedly what you would call a democracy throughout the 19th century and early 20th century, had much more severe restrictions on suffrage than the United States did. Um, As late as like 1910, um, only about, or maybe 1900, only about 60% of adult men in England could even participate in the vote. Um, and, and, And you would not call that system sort of, in its day sort of a non-functioning democracy uh but i do think that as currently construed in the world the basis of working democracies is universal adult suffrage and to start monkeying with that is to rethink a lot of assumptions um about how politics is structured uh you know the classic formulation from the 18th century is that you should only let people with land vote because they're the only people invested in the community and if you don't, if you let people who don't own land vote, what you're going to get invariably is is a system that devolves into anarchy. That was just rock solid basic logic in the 18th century, uh, in, in in British democracy and colonial America and the early American Republic. Um, turned out it wasn't true. <laughs> turned out it wasn't true. Just the other system works. The universal adult suffrage system works. Who knew, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, whatever gains you know, you might make by by reverting to some sort of system. Uh, One is that you're going to have all sorts of problems in enforcement. Like, this is like when people say, oh, a fairly administered literacy test would be good, right? We don't have an example of fairly administered literacy test, right? Um, All we have in American history is the use of the literacy test at the state level to uh, manipulate the vote and who is allowed to take part in the vote, right? Um, or, Or, you know, so I don't I don't. I don't. You know. Even if you could show me that the system normatively would be better, I don't believe in a practical sense it could ever be better. And I have a high doubt that normatively it's better too. Um, you know. And again, you can point out all the flaws of universal adult suffrage. I don't think one of them uh, is that you get overall worse quality of your governance than than in a limited suffrage scenario um and part of that is that the other half of like the modern world in the modern democratic world is universal suffrage plus like political parties as the basis of political decision making and as long as you know which party better represents your interests what else do you need to know um and and believe it or not most adults in the united states can very easily identify which party they like better and state a reason they like them better um and it's not a sophisticated reason um and it may not always be a good reason but they, they they see a distinction between the parties and they feel compelled to vote for one over the other and that cue alone is a shorthand for you know getting it right a lot of the time
1: uh, totally different <laughs> subject but um we were talking earlier about the um casinos being open during the pandemic i uh, yeah. so, uh someone that i coach uh had made a final table recently that was played on an rfid thing and i was like oh that's neat because you know for, for exclusively live players i don't usually have the opportunity to do the kind of hand history review that i can do with an online player yeah. where they just have like a text-based hand history so i was like oh that'll be great and like you know there's there's video of it so we can kind of get a sense. like we can look for like tells and i i've forgotten everyone's gonna oh, be wearing right. masks of course <laughs> so there really were not a lot of opportunities <laughs> mm-hmm. to observe uh, you know people weren't talking very much and um, but it was a, you know i just really i've seen i'd seen photographs of people playing during the um were in the in the sort of uh, reopen uh, casinos, but that was the first time that I had really you know I just like it was so off my radar. It hadn't even occurred to me that until I saw the video, I was like, oh, of course, that everyone's wearing masks. But that had not. It was just like I, I wasn't even thinking about it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Down at National Harbor, I, I I I got like the email from them or the text when they actually reopened the poker room, and they were like doing like the seven handed tables or whatever with like the plexiglass screens, and it just. It sounded like such a awful experience to go play poker in that manner that I had I haven't looked into it since. Um, I, I you know it's probably it's probably true that like I think people have come to the idea that contact transmission of COVID is not quite the worry people had before. On the other hand, I just associate casinos with people getting sick in general, um, and so I would have no 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 interest in doing that. And it, it is. It's funny to think about people sitting around the table with people all on masks. I wonder if it reduces the inane discussions. I doubt it. Maybe one benefit, side benefit. No one's talking about the bad beat <laughs>
3: jackpot. Doubt that's anything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> can't even yeah, I mean, don't miss that. Um uh, yeah, so I don't I don't know. I I uh, I was I was thinking that there'd be a world series of poker next summer on the regular schedule. And now I'm, I'm wondering if it's a, uh, I'm wondering if it's even a favorite to happen now.
1: Yeah. I really don't feel comfortable trying to make a prediction that far out. You know, I feel like there's so many. um, Yeah. It just, it feels really hard to, to envision.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's two stages, like one,
1: will it happen? And two, will anyone show up? Right. I I, Um, I think they will show. I mean, I've been surprised how many people um, are back playing poker now. Even people who I, I mean, I, I know some people were sort of eye rolling towards the you know closing the casinos in the in the first place or like shutting stuff Mm -hmm. down. Um, And you know, it's obviously not a surprise that like as soon as stuff is open, they're going back to it. But I think even people who are kind of broadly on board with like, okay, well, we have to you know it's dangerous, we have to close stuff down. And then um, when it's just like once it's reopened, even no, like I mean, I think it would be hard to. Look at the the process by which the decision to reopen these things was made, and think like, "Oh, this was you know definitely a decision made based on sound. You know, not not that they necessarily <laughs> got it wrong, but just like I don't think they went through a good process." And no. but I, so I think like the number of people which is like, "Well, if they're open, I guess I'm going." You know, like it, it, I guess it's it's been a little surprising to me.
2: Yeah. No. I mean, I, I'm not super surprised. Uh, Like that, like people went back to like. I remember the first day National Harbor was open. Like I looked at it like 10 a.m. I looked at like Bravo or whatever, and there was like, you know, 15 tables of one, three, no limit. I was like, who the hell's doing that? Right? This was like a while ago, but I do agree that there is this sort of um, bad signal that like opening up like signals to people that it's safe or that like some sort of rigorous analysis has been brought to this about your health. Uh, and that seems just flatly wrong to me, um, but you know, I, I I don't doubt that if they had a World Series, some people would be there. I just, it's I mean, can you imagine like when they got like the Colossus going or whatever? And it's like all the. I mean, it just seems like, a, it's like I mean, it's, I have no interest in like anything resembling that right now. Um, but I also do think that my impression was that the online World Series of Poker they ran did not meet expectations um, from the sort of ownership side and I don't know about from the player side but my my impression and I very casually looked at it or whatever was that they did not draw the numbers to that that they thought they might um, and so that they may be itching from a sort of brand and financial perspective to, to get back to, to, the, to the live World Series but I mean who the hell knows right that depends on things out of their control yeah. i do, i do wonder i politically i do wonder i mean sometimes you have you have like these you know very hardcore partisan republicans saying things like well as soon as biden wins the pandemic will be over right because it's all sort of this fiction i do wonder if how much a soft version of that does exist um, where you know uh, the election will happen and then a couple of months will pass and and and, and sort of liberals will get out of the sort of the partisan mindset of the pandemic and you'll see some sort of marginal uh, change in behavior that has very little to do with sort of the change of the underground health reality um you see there's a lot of time with the economy for instance right like partisans are well known to like believe the economy is doing worse when the other party controls the government and uh better when their party does and it, it, to the degree of like ridiculous discontinuity charts right where like trump takes office and all of a sudden it's like a 40 point change in how people perceive the economy you know, over the course of a week right um and and so i don't know if anything like that's going to hit the pandemic like i don't I certainly don't believe it's like a conspiracy of liberals to play up the pandemic, but I do wonder if there will be people uh, who soften on it. And I don't see a whole lot of incentive um, for Republicans all of a sudden to say everything's terrible with the pandemic, although maybe if it gets significantly worse on the ground, they would do that. Uh, but you might see sort of just a general shift towards things aren't quite as bad as we thought or like, you know, now we really do want to open schools. Or on the margins, you might get some stuff like that.
1: Yeah, it's so weird trying to, to, I mean, I don't know how much the pandemic is is distinct from any other sort of um, major event or something, but just like, it it feels very unprecedented to me in terms of what, you know, like we have experience of seeing how politicians handle recession or something like that or you're like and how like, yeah. like you were just you know quoting empirical data on yeah. that and right. you know th- this seems so different from anything at least in the last 100 years which you know we go back older than that and you're starting to it gets tenuous to make any kind of comparison um yeah yeah it just yeah i don't
2: yeah i i do think that I, I, there's a couple general things about these sorts of crises um or even more general about like trump is that like it's pretty hard for Sort of bad governance or unlike politicians to drag down a political party or a political ideology for very long. Like, even if you know Biden won 450 electoral college votes and the Democrats won 57 Senate seats and 260 House seats and crushed the Republican state legislature, Republicans will be back in shape in four to six years, no problem, right? Like, these things just don't, you know, politics just moves on, um, and and, you know, you can go long stretches where one party has an advantage, but it's very rare for like a sort of two year blip like this because of a recession, because of a pandemic, because of bad governing decisions to really crush a political party for a extended period of time. Um, obviously, in, in the wake of and in the wake of Watergate and Nixon, it didn't take but six years for the for the Republicans to get the presidency back, Um and uh, so, you know, I think fortunes can rebound pretty quickly politically. As to the specific pandemic, um, yeah, I don't know how much it is, like, how much we can learn from, like, generalized, like, politics of crises versus politics of, like, pandemics in, in, in general. I don't know. Um, some of it is, like, that, uh, you know... Is this like a hurricane response in some ways, right? Like, is the governance response to this similar to other... Can you think of a pandemic as just a natural disaster, right? Or can you think of it like a war? Um, because if, if those comparisons are apt, then there's things to be learned. But maybe it's just different. I don't know. It certainly feels different to me. Like, I, I don't... I don't think the year after 9-11 felt anything like this. At least it didn't in my memory. Yeah. Like, there were ways there were ways to like just go on with your life. Um, and I don't, I don't remember ever, I don't remember ever being in a situation where politics forced my life to utterly change in this sort of discontinuity for, for this long a period of time. Um, uh, so I, 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 you know, it's, it's long-term effect of politics, I think will be minimal. Um, but in the short term, like, we just don't know. I mean, you could get, you could get this vote on Tuesday that is just quite obviously like a... You effed up the pandemic response, Trump. You were not a leader, and, like, you are just gone. Um, and we don't know. I mean, uh, the, the hardest part about polling this election, anything separate from fixing the 2016 polling, is that modeling the turnout is just crazy tough right now. Because not only do you have major enthusiasm of the election, we're about to set a record for most voters. I don't think there's any doubt uh, that we're going to have more voters than we've had, you know, in anyone's lifetime who's alive right now. Um and at the same time, you have a pandemic, which has totally changed the structure of how people vote and sort of the willingness of who's wanting to vote. And so, you know, if, if you end up with a situation where you have a huge enthusiasm gap to vote among liberals combined with this, you know, pandemic that might keep the marginal senior home, you could get sort of like an election that you just don't believe is possible in a polarized age. I mean, when we were kids, the 84 election, you know, Reagan won 49 states. That just doesn't seem possible now. Uh, But back then, you know, when you had much more people open to rewarding a uh, incumbent who's done a good job uh, as opposed to just voting as a partisan, uh, you could get blowouts like that. Um, The idea that you could get that many electoral votes now, that you could even get 400 electoral votes now, uh, seems hard to believe, but it may just happen on Tuesday. Um, Again, I could see Trump winning, right? You can imagine the scenario, uh, but you can also imagine a uh, Biden blowout that is beyond sort of ex-ante what you could have possibly predicted um, even a year ago, even conditional on the first three years of the Trump presidency.
0: rain, rain tapping on my devotion of a passage of bill
2: and will sign us and that uh, white women are just turned off by trump um, to a degree that uh, we didn't believe possible uh, even for even 4 years ago Yeah, so we can do it all again in uh, in December when we talk about the second term of the Trump presidency. Won't that be fun? <laughs>